Thanks for following along the second season of Crime Beat. And thanks so much to the listeners who have supported our sponsor, the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. I've seen shows there several times, and it's a great night out. In January, they will have a new play, the very dark comedy Arsenic and Old Lace. There will be more details and a discount code later in this episode. So thank you to the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. If you're a true crime fan, you should check out the Murderish podcast, which is hosted by my friend Jamie. Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened. And I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish, as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app, hit subscribe, and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. And here's Crime Beat. Some of the descriptions... Details and language in this podcast may not be suitable for all audiences. When you listen to all the old cassette tapes of interviews that I have listened to, you're waiting for something to jump out. Some mistake, some lie, some slip of the tongue. So I became fascinated with one of the interviews with Javier Lopez, the cousin of the lead suspect in the murder of Kathy Torres. The interview took place on February 24, 1994, four days after Kathy was discovered stabbed to death in the trunk of her own car. Javier Lopez said he wasn't involved in killing anybody. He just wanted to party. That's all. At least that's what he kept repeating to the cops in that interview and for all those years. On February 12, 1994, Javier's sister Virginia was celebrating her birthday. And she, Javier, and a group of people were going to a club called Fantasia in La Puente. Fantasia. It had a pink pastel and blue exterior. It shared a parking lot with a Levitz furniture store. Javier told police his goal on that night was to dance in that club. And his story picks up about 8 p.m. on the night Kathy Torres disappeared. Javier talks about wanting to go to the club, getting ready paging his cousin, driving around with Sam Lopez in Sam's truck, stopping at friend John Barroso's house before starting the trek to La Puente. His story just didn't seem right. Here's what it sounded like when Placentia police officers Gary Legalbo and Bob Jenkins questioned Javier. I think what seems odd, at least just on first glance to me, is here you are at home taking a shower, getting ready because you're going to go out partying for, did you say your sister's birthday? Right. One of your sister's birthdays. And it sounds to me as if people were getting ready to leave in the in the very near future. And rather than just give John a call and say, hey man, last chance, do you, you know, come on, go, we're going to have a lot of fun. You go all the trouble of paging someone to come and get you, which is going to be an inconvenience right. for them, drive them all the have them come all the way out to Anaheim Hills to get you, drive you all the way to Fullerton to drop you off at John's, just so that a couple minutes later, everybody else can come over to John's to pick you up and, and get you going with them, whatever dance. What dance club do you go to? 
Fantasia. Whatever, down to Fantasia. It, you see my point? Yeah, but see, I mean, I, we didn't know this. Where's Fantasia? Whoa, wait. Did you hear that? Javier said, We, we didn't, didn't know this was going to, huh? And then he stops because Jenkins asks him another question. It seems pretty clear he was about to say, we didn't know this was going to happen. Meaning, he might have had a logical explanation for all the strange movements that night if this whole murder of Kathy Torres thing didn't get in the way. And then, his fingerprint was found on the trunk of Kathy's car. And then, his DNA was found on the left rear quarter panel. In 1997, Javier was arrested, but the police turned right around and let him go when the DA chose not to file charges. And Sam Lopez, the guy Kathy Torres' mother believed was a murderer, she watched him get married and father a child while he was living across the street. Even with interviews like this on tape, and there were several incriminating interviews that I'll share with you, justice wasn't getting done. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter with the Southern California News Group. In 1994, Kathy Torres, a 20-year-old student at Cal State Fullerton, never came home from working the night shift in the photo department at Savon. In this podcast, I'm going to show you just how cold a case can get. I'm going to tell you about Kathy's mother, Mary Bennett, her family, Detective Darren Wyatt, and their extraordinary and frustrating two-plus decade pursuit of justice. This is Crime Beat, Season 2, Episode 8, Cold as Ice. What is a cold case? Think about it. It sounds so innocuous, cold case. What if it was called a getting away with murder case? What if it was called the murderer is still walking the streets case? Someone stabbed Kathy Torres 74 times, stuffed her in the trunk of her own car, and left her body in a parking lot. There was a fingerprint. There was DNA evidence. Both those pieces of the puzzle pointed to Javier Lopez, who said he spent the evening of February 12, 1994, driving around with Sam Lopez, Kathy Torres's ex-boyfriend with anger issues. And Sam failed his polygraph examination. There was screaming circumstantial evidence. And still, no one was charged with murder for years and years and years. There may not have been a legal case, but the death of Kathy Torres was such a negative force, it ended the marriage of Kathy's sister Tina and Sam's brother Armando. Was, was this the issue? Like, mm-hmm. it, it was? Well, I, it, everything affected everything. I mean, we, I think everything was trying to maintain at the beginning. Um, I had... You know, he, uh, he was supportive. Right, he was with through, you. Right, he was questioning. Right, and so he was there and stuff, and it wasn't until, um, you know, things happened, and um, there's a split, too. Um, became estranged from his family, obviously. Because he took your side. Yeah, but I also, yeah, he did, too, for a while, and right. then I did. I remained estranged from them, so, okay. you know, that happened. So it seems good at that point. Right, well, it wasn't, for being... Everything had everything took its toll. So you're just trying to maintain and trying to survive, and you're taking punches 
from all sides. Right. You're dealing with pain. When I say punches, it's, it's the pain. Right. And so you're just trying to get by. And so I think eventually everything took its its toll. Did he eventually uh, take his family side back again? Is that what the final straw? No, no. It's just that I just couldn't. I saw that the way that the path that we were on, it it wasn't going to. I was still dealing with my pain, and and I I was getting I was trying to to work with my pain, and I didn't see that th that we were going to go in the same direction. You know that he wasn't going to do things that were going to be uh, positive as a couple. So then that's when I just said, I can't do this anymore. Tina and Armando's divorce became final in the year 2000. As the world approached the beginning of the new millennium, people were worried about the Y2K computer malfunction. Very few people seemed concerned about who killed Kathy Torres. No one was investigating. There were no more interviews being done, no more forensic tests. Here's Darren Wyatt, who made a tearful pledge to Kathy Torres's mother, Mary Bennett, that he was going to get justice in this case. Well, the case had become cold. Uh, they uh, had done what they thought was everything that they could do uh, up to that point and uh, had presented the information they had to the district attorney's office uh, and the DA's office the told them no. DA's office told them that there was no case to file. Why do you think, all these years later, in hindsight, why didn't they do it? I think that the system at the DA's office at the time was um, a merit-based system where they were uh, promoted and everything else based on convictions. Right. And if and, there was any question, yeah, they, they were less likely. That's my personal belief. Personal belief. Uh, not that they didn't have some amazing attorneys right. in that unit, because they did. In February of 1999, Darren Wyatt was promoted. He became a sergeant and went back to patrol. He was no longer a detective. So you're not on the case anymore? I'm not on the case anymore. And the case is dead? The case is essentially dead. The case was shipped off to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Those detectives got nowhere. I don't know how much longer after that uh, they send uh, a note back from the Sheriff's Department um, saying this case will never be filed. Is that because they've then talked to the DA? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So everything was against was against solving the Torres case. Yeah. The sheriff's in homicide investigator, the DA, two DAs, their boss, the district attorney, all working to say, yeah. and, and it died. It died. Okay. <clears throat> Literally. Mary Bennett heard that, too. Her daughter's case was dead. So she started calling the new detectives, the ones who had replaced Darren Wyatt. One particular detective showed Mary the binders full of files about the Kathy Torres case. And I went through uh, a lot of detectives, too. That right. I, I, would, I would call them, I would go meet them, and I won't mention the name of one that afterwards, years later, I saw him again and I don't see you because I went in and one of the times that I did go in, he told me, you see those binders up there on the shelf? 
He says those are those are the case. They've been sitting up there and there's nothing to do. That's what he, he, was, told me. he was telling you it's over. Yeah. yeah. He said he never really looked at him. I won't mention his name, but he told me that. I never forgot that. The case, or the lack of a case, crushed Mary Bennett. I lost my mom the day my sister basically um, never came home. The, the mom I knew. What do you mean by that? Because she... Because she's a mom who lost her child in a way that no one should ever have any idea or know what that's like. So the day my sister didn't come home, a part of my mom was lost. You know what was never lost? The anger in Mary Bennett's heart. What she did next, six years after her daughter was found dead, should be the stuff of legend among victims' rights groups around the world. More coming up on Mary after the break. Here's the special offer from the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. Buy one ticket to Arsenic and Old Lace, get one free. Use the promo code ANTBOGO, A-U-N-T-B-O-G-O. Enter the code before selecting your seats. Valid on all performances of Arsenic and Old Lace. Offer good on full price tickets only. Tickets are available at LaMiradaTheater.com. Don't miss Broadway's classic killer comedy, Arsenic and Old Lace. Combining murder and mayhem with zany humor, Arsenic and Old Lace is an uproaring comedy that gives hospitality a bad name. Opens January 24th through February 16th. Tickets at LaMiradaTheater.com. I will never forget talking to Mary's son, Marty. He called his mother the tip of the spear. That's the best description I've heard about Mary Bennett. The tip of the spear would not be stopped. You remember the year 2000. Survivor debuted on television. Brad Pitt married Jennifer Aniston. How the Grinch Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey and Cast Away with Tom Hanks were the biggest box office movies. Mary Bennett got a job. Not because of the salary or the benefits or because she wanted to advance her career. She got a job in the Placentia City Hall because of the placement of the desk. In 2000, Mary Bennett got a job working for the city's housing department. She worked as a bookkeeper, keeping track of low-income housing repairs. In Placentia, City Hall and the police department are in the same building. Mary Bennett's desk was situated just outside the office of the chief of police. I was keeping Kathy there. Because see, every time, a lot of them got to know me. Uh, from the police department. And they knew, they'd just come by, they'd wave hi as they walked by, and, and uh, the chief of police, every time there was a new one, I'd go knocking on his door. What would to, you say? Well, I, I wanted to know what, what, what they could do, what they were doing. Kathy's death had changed the course of Mary's family. Mary was working strategically in City Hall. Marty, her son, got a job as a clerk in the court system. Tina was a schoolteacher who became active in victims' rights groups all over Southern California. And then there's Debbie. 
Inspired by seeing female detectives working on her sister's case, Debbie joined the police explorers when she was in eighth grade. She was going to be a cop. But when Javier was arrested and quickly released, when the DA refused to file charges, when Sam Lopez continued to live freely across the street, Debbie had a crisis of conscience. She moved out of her house and attended Chapman University. It was just a few miles away. Yeah, when I went to Chapman, I think that was a good experience to, you know, even though it was close by, I moved on campus and it gave me like a new, I don't know how to explain it, but like a chance to kind of explore what, what is this that I want to do. Right. And then through my experience at Chapman, I had a professor, I think my junior year, I took constitutional law and I had a professor that really encouraged me to go to law school. Who's that professor? Uh, her name's Dr. Uh, Lopez, Dr. Linda Lopez. Oh, I'm sure her last name's changed now. But okay, Dr. Linda, yeah. right, at that and time. she just was 110% behind me um, early on. And so, um, and she kind of made me feel like it, you can do this. And I remember being afraid, like, the summer that I started to study for the LSATs, um, you know, she, she went with me to the bookstore to get the LSAT book, and I just... <laughs> And I remember her telling me, no, you can do this, like, you can do this. And I remember at that time going, mm, okay, I'll get the book and I'll start. But I didn't, I didn't have like, like that confidence that I could really do it. But I, I do remember her being a very strong encouragement for me. Debbie Torres had an identity. In college, and still today, she feels it. She is the sister of the dead girl. And everybody knew who, who I was, you know. And then even outside of that, when I'd go... You know, other places, you know, if people, you know, um, saw me, they would immediately recognize, oh, you're Kevin Torres' sister. And, you know, I frequently got people, you know, even sometimes a lot of people would call me Kevin. And they'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I was like, it's okay. But, but yeah, I definitely knew that that was, that was, you know, a big part of my identity. Debbie Torres went to law school at UC Davis. She got her degree and she now works representing children in child abuse and neglect cases. She thinks back to the time that police made an arrest and let the suspect go as the point that changed her life. Kathy would be proud. In the first years of the new millennium, the cold case of Kathy Torres froze over. And then, something happened. Actually, it was a series of somethings. On April 16, 2003, a young couple, Sarah Rodriguez and Matt Corbett, had just left McDonald's on their way to a Bible study class when their car was forced off the road by a man named Richard Joseph Namey. Namey was Rodriguez's ex-boyfriend. Namey shot both people in the car. He fired three shots that hit Corbett, then he walked around to the other side of the car and shot Rodriguez in the temple. The shooting left Rodriguez dead and Corbett paralyzed. Corbett didn't know his girlfriend was dead until weeks later when his father told him in the hospital. Three days later, Namie was caught after a 42-mile freeway chase. He ran from a stolen minivan and was found in a drainage tunnel near Foothill High School. Namie was convicted and the judge slapped him with a 101-year sentence. I bring that shooting up because of where it happened. That shooting took place in Placentia, the same city where Kathy Torres had lived and died. The Namey case, in effect, helped bring the Kathy Torres case back to life. Not long after that shooting, 
Darren Wyatt was transferred back to detectives. He started working on the Sarah Rodriguez murder just before the NAMI preliminary hearing. Wyatt interviewed the survivor, Matt Corbett, in the hospital. Wyatt showed Corbett a photo lineup, and Corbett picked out NAMI. So Wyatt had to testify about Corbett's identification in court. Wyatt and Deputy District Attorney Dennis Conway were bringing their exhibits, which are the charts and graphs and photos they're going to use in the case, into the courtroom. So when it goes to court for the preliminary hearing, uh, I'm walking through the hallway with Dennis Conway, who's now Placentia's homicide detective, and they're doing the preliminary hearing for the for the uh, Rodriguez, case. Rodriguez case. And uh, as we're walking through the hallway, he goes, ah, do me a favor here, hold my exhibit. So I go, uh, sure, I'll do your favor, but you got to do me a favor. And we're walking, he goes, what's that? I go, i got a cold case I need you to take a look at. And he stops in the middle of the hallway at North Court and goes, if it's a case I'm thinking of, I'm not touching it with a 10-foot pole. And it was. And it was. He goes, uh, it's a political hot potato. I'm not touching it. I said, okay. Um, we get done with the preliminary hearing. We go down. I go, Dennis, you're not doing any justice to me or to the to the victim's family because you're saying that you won't take a look at it without having any real knowledge of it. You might hear one side, but you haven't heard my side. Here's the thing about Darren Wyatt. He made a promise to Mary Bennett, and he was going to keep that promise. If she was the tip of the spear... Darren was the one pushing the case forward. He can be very persuasive. He convinced Conway that Sam and Javier should have been arrested and charged with murder, but that wasn't enough. Conway then met with investigators who worked for the Orange County District Attorney's Office. I'm not talking about the attorneys. This meeting was lower on the food chain. This meeting was with the investigators. Remember, this was happening in the same office which had been shooting down this case for years. The district attorney's homicide unit, which had always concluded that there was no case against Sam Lopez, allowed Conway to conduct what is informally called a turkey shoot. In other words, you put out your case, your turkey, and you see if someone will take a shot. Conway presented the facts of the case to a team inside the district attorney's office. One of the people who listened was Larry Montgomery. Larry is a legend in Orange County. The Orange County Register newspaper once called Larry Montgomery the evidence whisperer. He earned his reputation by helping solve cold cases. He's tall and thin, wears glasses. He looks like a science teacher at a private school. I sat fascinated at his kitchen table as he talked for a couple of hours about human behavior. He pulled out notebooks full of witness statements, thousands of pages, each with color-coded highlights with a different color for lies and inconsistent statements. Larry has developed a system for pulling truth and lies out of people's interviews. In the world of law enforcement, Larry Montgomery is as cerebral as they come. From the jump, Larry could see how difficult it would be to get a conviction in this case. It's a perfect reasonable doubt case. And when you work for the district attorney's office, a perfect reasonable doubt case is a loser. I'll have a lot more from Larry in an upcoming episode. But something strange happened on the day Dennis Conway conducted that turkey shoot. Reasonable doubt didn't scare Larry Montgomery away. Larry walked out of that meeting thinking he could help get a conviction. Remember, he was just an investigator. This case needed one of the homicide attorneys to have the guts to take a case they might lose. Larry Montgomery went down the hall and spoke to Matt Murphy. 
you may recognize that name, Matt Murphy, from other podcasts. He just recently announced his retirement, but here's what you need to know about Matt Murphy. He was a star in the district attorney's office. Matt Murphy was interviewed in the first episode of the Dirty John podcast. Matt was also involved in season one of Crime Beat. He was behind the podium when District Attorney Todd Spitzer announced the arrest of James Neal for the 1973 murder of Linda O'Keefe. That case was featured in a bonus episode of this podcast. To call him a podcast star would be to completely underestimate the career of Matt Murphy. How many assistant district attorneys have pages on the Internet Movie Database? Matt Murphy does. A quick scan of his IMDb page reveals Matt has appeared on The Perfect Murder, Dateline NBC, The World's Most Evil Killers, 2020, and 48 Hours, among others. He's tall and blonde and good-looking. He's got the look of an Orange County surfer who might have a wetsuit on underneath his shirt and tie. The camera loves him, and juries love him. Matt Murphy passed the bar in 1993, and he got hired by the Orange County District Attorney's Office. In his first case, he prosecuted a guy who had thrown a bottle of cough syrup and hit someone in a passing car. Matt got a conviction in that case. He remembers getting congratulated by one of the kings of the homicide unit, Lou Rosenblum. And he said, you know, you've got, a, he goes, you've got, you've got some ability, you've got a future, he goes, you're going to be a homicide one day. Homicide was Matt Murphy's dream. If you killed somebody in Orange County during those years, you were going down. Nobody, however, was going down for the murder of Kathy Torres. In 1994, when Kathy Torres was found dead, Matt Murphy was 26 years old. He was not yet Matt Murphy. He was assigned to the juvenile division at the time. He didn't become involved in the case until it had been cold for 10 years. He knew the history. Darren Wyatt wanted murder charges. The DA's office, until this point, had said no. There was a lot of acrimony between, between the original filing, or the original reviewing deputy, and the detectives. And there was also, I mean, remember, there was a series of mistakes that were made um, by, you know, like they didn't, they didn't test the fingerprints. They, you know, there was a, you know, and that happens in every case. Mm -hmm. People are human. They didn't send the shirt off. Some of the clothing didn't get sent to the right, and, and hindsight, of course, is twenty twenty, mm -hmm. and it's and it's easy to look back and criticize. Right. And knowing all of these detectives, especially now, everybody really was doing their best. But there were some there were some structural problems. Like it's one of those disputes, honestly, that in with the with the benefit of hindsight, I can really see both sides. I really can. But they there was a clash, and then there was another clash, and emotions were running high because these guys really. You know, I, I think that when somebody's at a scene, having gone to many now, and you see some beautiful young woman that's been butchered and is, you know, a week in a decomp in the trunk of a car, like, you, that, that is an emotional hook for the detectives that are there. And then, you know, when you have a, a, a DA that's, that's not there, you know, that hasn't talked to the family, it, there's a, an academic disconnect from that, that, that drives a lot of police crazy in general. And right. that, and the, you know... And, the, and also, the emotions from detectives can be pretty maddening sometimes from the prosecutor's standpoint because, you know, we, we've got to make our decisions 
totally based on the evidence and the law with zero emotion. We've got to be absolutely mercenary, and that's our job. It doesn't matter if Mary Bennett is the greatest mom in the world and so sad. And right. Our filing standard here is you not only have to subjectively believe the person did it to 100% certainty with no doubt as the prosecutor, um, you also have to believe that you can convince 12 people beyond reasonable doubt. Okay. And, or at least that you have a reasonable likelihood of, su of succeeding in that. Larry Montgomery convinced Matt Murphy, and Murphy finally looked at the cold case of Kathy Torres. Not to file charges, just to re-examine it. That's when Darren Wyatt started in on Matt Murphy. Not only do I have respect for Darren, with all the work that we've done together over the years, I love the guy. I mean, I really do. I, mm. I love him and I respect him. And um, so when he came to me and started leaning on me, you know, to take a look at this, and I think this thing is, you know, you can win this, and... You know, I, I'm getting pressure from somebody that I really respect and really like. Would Matt Murphy file charges in this case? Would he go against the district attorney's office and the recommendations of people like his mentor, Lou Rosenblum? Lou Rosenblum graduated from Ryder College in New Jersey in 1973. He got a master's degree from USC in 1977. He got his law degree from Western State University in 1980. In 1997, three years after Kathy Torres was murdered, Lou Rosenblum was named to the Western State University Hall of Fame. He was also named California State Prosecutor of the Year in 1998. And that's when California Lawyer Magazine named him one of the top 20 lawyers in the state. This would have been summer of 1992. I was a uh, junior law clerk. He was clerking in the Ritz and Appeals Unit when he got to know an assistant DA named Mike Malfetta. One day, Matt and Mike were in the law library. And Lou walks in, and Mike all of a sudden kind of perked up. And Mike didn't perk up for anybody. And he's like, hey, I want to introduce you to, uh, to Lou Rosenblum. This is the best trial lawyer in the office. And Lou was, he was a force of nature. The guy, he tried 67 murder cases, and he won 67 murder cases. I can't imagine there's another prosecutor in the country that actually accomplished that. Young prosecutor Matt Murphy would go sit in the back of the courtroom just to watch Lou Rosenblum work. The guy was absolutely brilliant and he would figure out, he would figure out a hook and he would just, it was like he would mock intellectually anybody that could go against this conclusion that he reached. There was a twist in this case about to happen that no one saw coming. It had to do with a legal maneuver behind the scenes that changed everything. And Matt Murphy and Lou Rosenblum were the two guys involved. Next time on Crime Beat, Season 2, Mom vs. Murderer. Surprise, four arrests. Mary Bennett had no idea what was happening behind the scenes in her daughter's murder investigation as the police used surveillance and wiretaps to zero in on four suspects. Crime Beat, Season 2, was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Audio editing, mixing, and music by Kevin Sablon. Field recording and videos by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused, Sarah Koenig on Serial, Brian Reed on S-Town, Chris Gofford on Dirty John, Madeline Barron on In the Dark, Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace, and Phoebe Judge on Criminal. 
The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings, write great reviews, and tell your friends to check out our work. Also, you can listen to Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. That story was the inspiration behind the 2019 movie Finding Steve McQueen, starring Forrest Whitaker, Travis Fimmel, Rachel Taylor, and William Fickner. Thanks for listening. Here's more information on the play Arsenic and Old Lace at the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. The play is scheduled to run from January 24th through February 16th. Use the promo code ANTBOGO, A-U-N-T-B-O-G-O, for a discount on tickets at lamradatheater.com.